0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk, challenges to free will.
1: I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyway. And don't worry about the vase. What vase? That vase.
0: What's really going to bake your noodle later on is,
2: would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything?
0: If everything that happens, happens by necessity, is there any room left for free will? Should we just give up trying and go with the predetermined flow? Can free will be reconciled with divine foreknowledge, with determinism? Is free will just an illusion? Our guest is Manuel Vargas from the University of San Francisco. Challenges to free will. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco.
2: We're continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, challenges to freedom. In other words, reasons why we may not be as free to make choices as we think we are. Ken, there's a long history of philosophers who've worried about whether we're really free, and there's a, quite a long list of reasons put forward for these worries—reasons to show that we're not really free.
0: Okay, but but let's start with two preliminary questions. What is freedom, and why does freedom matter? I mean, you've taught this topic for, I don't know, 40 years or so, I think, John. You must have some kind of answers to those uh, two basic questions.
2: Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But with tenure, I didn't really need to. No, I'm just kidding. Let's start with a little fantasy. Take yourself back, Ken, to the time when God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. They were expelled for disobeying him and eating from the apple tree. Now, suppose you travel back in time, Ken Taylor, and offer your services to Adam and Eve as a defense attorney. What would you say? Oh, wow. Well,
0: first thing I'd say is, oh, God, I'm sorry. I take back everything I ever said about you not existing, sir. Please <laughs> forgive me. And then I'd say, look, God, you created everything, including Adam and Eve. You created the apple tree and the serpent. You and you alone decided what the world was going to be like. Every detail. Every detail. You're all-powerful and all-knowing. So you knew what that serpent would say to Eve, and you knew what Eve would say to Adam, and you knew how Adam would react. So how in the world, God, can you blame Adam when you created him just the way he was, as a spineless wuss who would do what his wife told him? If, if you didn't want him to eat that apple, you should have created him differently. You should have created someone who would have said, Sorry, Eve, I cannot, I will not obey God, and you, Eve, must not either.
2: And what if God had replied to you, Ken? But... Mr. Taylor, Adam was free. He could have eaten the apple, or he could have refrained from eating the apple. It was up to him. It was his choice. He made the wrong choice, so I'm mad at him and intend to punish him and all of his descendants, including you.
0: Well, I'd shake my boots a little bit, but I'd bug up my courage and i say, Uh, look, God, I'm sorry, but that makes no sense. Your, your holiness, your highness, your Whateverness. Adam may have thought, he may have thought to himself, I can eat the apple or I cannot eat the apple, but that thought was an illusion. No finite mortal being can do something that you, God, already knew he wouldn't do. You created Adam with a sense of freedom, but not the reality of freedom. So, sir, I, honor, I submit it's grossly unfair, grossly unfair to punish him. You're a good
2: defense attorney, Ken, and your response gets at the answers to the questions you ask. What we mean by freedom is the power to choose between two actions, doing something or not doing that very same thing. We not only have the thought, I can do A, and I can also refrain from doing A, but the thought is true. We really could do either one. And this is important because unless one can really choose, one really doesn't deserve to be punished for what one does. So there's the first challenge to free will. If God really knows ahead of time what we're going to do, can we really do otherwise? And if we can't, no one is really to blame for what they do, and no one should be punished for what they do,
0: even by God. Okay, so we have some sense of what's meant by freedom and why it's important. And I think my defense of Adam was cheeky but pretty good, but I don't suppose God would have been uh, quite convinced.
2: Well, not only God, but also a whole list of brilliant philosophers from Augustine to Leibniz to Bob Adams wouldn't think you had things quite right. But we ought to move on to a second serious challenge to free will, where the problem isn't that God knows everything, but that everything is caused, including the thoughts and decisions of human beings. In other words, can we really be free if our decisions are caused by our brain states, which are them have prior causes, and so forth, and so on, and so on, and so forth, so that ultimately our decisions were caused by events in the remote past for which we have no responsibility. What we decide to do now was really determined long before we were born. So
0: you're talking about determinism, and the view that everything we do is determined by the laws of nature and past events. Given the state of the world, say in 1940, long before I was born, and the laws of nature, it follows inevitably that I was going to break the speed limit on my trip to the studio today. And there's nothing in the world I, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't, I can't do anything about how the world was. I can't do, I can't violate the laws. So I was really determined. It seemed that I could slow down, but I really couldn't slow down.
2: So if you'd been stopped by a police officer, you might have explained all this to him uh, uh, to avoid getting a ticket. Uh, And what do you suppose he would have said, Ken? Well, if he had philosophical training, he might have said, that may be, but it's equally determined
0: that I should give you a ticket. And then he would give me the ticket. Or maybe he would have said, that doesn't matter, because quantum physics tells us that determinism isn't true after all.
2: Well, it's, it's hard to know what to say to the first thing, except uh, yes, sir. <laughs> but to the second, about quantum physics, it seems like you might say this. Look, quantum physics might show there's a little leeway in the way the universe unfolds, but not a lot. It hardly shows that my speeding was the inevitable consequences of the state of my brain, which was the inevitable result of my experiences through life and the nature I was born with. So please don't give me a ticket. So
0: freedom poses <laughs> challenges to two quite different ways of uh, looking at the world. Theists have to worry about the f- whether free will is compatible with God's foreknowledge, while people who go in for determinism, naturalists who believe that all we do and all all we are is determined by the laws of nature, they have to worry about it too.
2: It's a huge problem, Ken, but luckily we have a brilliant young philosopher Manuel Vargas from the University of San Francisco to help us think it through. And we'd like our listeners to help us too, join the conversation
0: by calling toll-free 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917.
2: But first our roving philosophical reporter April Dembowski visits an inner-city school to see how kids are harnessing their free will in the face of social determinism. She files this report.
3: It's mid-morning at Bridges Academy in East Oakland. Let's get in our mindful bodies. A class of fourth graders is taking time out from fractions and grammar for a class on mindfulness. And let your eyes close again. And we're going to stay with our breath, breathing in and out. Kate Janke visits the class for 15 minutes a day, three days a week for five weeks. She teaches kids to sit quietly, and to pay attention to sounds, smells, tastes, and feelings. We have a a lesson called Kindness on the Playground, talking about just really how to interact with other kids and what it feels like when we're being, you know, mean or picking on somebody else. The school hopes that by becoming more aware of themselves, kids will learn to override the urge to yell in class or hit another student. Lori Grossman helped develop the curriculum. A lot of the program is geared toward self-regulation and impulse control. And if kids can learn to control their impulses, then they're going to get in less trouble. If kids can learn to focus, then they're going to pay attention to the teacher more. This is important in inner-city schools, where most kids face a future shaped by dropout rates and crime stats. Mindfulness doesn't mean problems don't exist. Mindfulness means your reaction to the problems is different. So far, Oakland administrators report less behavior problems in their classrooms. Teachers say students are more calm. Liam Cunningham is a second grader at Park Day School. He uses his breathing exercises outside class, too. When I go to sleep, it's kind of hard. So I did mindfulness, and that made me go to sleep easier. Mira Gottlieb taught her five-year-old brother some mindfulness tricks. He had this headache, and he was Crying,
4: and he was so mad, and I said, Malcolm, do you want to do mindfulness? And he said, yeah, and then after like 30 seconds, his headache stopped.
3: When you take a breath, you change your brain chemistry. Again, Lori Grossman. The prefrontal cortex and the brain stem get integrated, and that's typically a sense of well-being when those things are integrated. Kids notice the benefits of mindfulness, not just in avoiding fights on the playground. They use it to enhance their skills, too soccer player Olivia Talley explains. Let's say you're the goalie and you want to concentrate on the ball, you want to do some mindfulness to, so you don't chat and you think about if the ball is coming what way you would go where and how you would act in different positions. A lot of the kids, like Mateo Galgera, pass the mindfulness lessons on to their parents.
2: Sometimes, like, my mom would come home from work and she'd be like, oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did today, you know, and, uh, and sometimes I'd just be like, like, in school, Mom, we do this thing that's called mindfulness, and basically all you have to do is really just, like, sit down for a little bit and just kind of reflect on what's going on. And so she tried it and evaded it a lot better.
3: Whether it's parents resisting road rage, athletes staying focused, or kids coping with violence, taking a moment to be mindful helps people gain control over their baser instincts. For students at inner-city schools, this can be the difference between ending up in jail and ending up in college. For Philosophy Talk, I'm April Domboski.
2: I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken
0: Taylor. And our guest today is Manuel Vargas. He's a professor of philosophy from the University of San Francisco, and he's also a fellow this year at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, he's co-author of Four Views on <laughs> Free Will. Manuel, welcome to Philosophy Talk.
2: Thanks. Great to be here. Manuel, what got you interested in the problem of free will, briefly?
4: Well, I don't know if I can do briefly, but I'll try. The uh, th- uh, Really, it's uh, there were two things. One was just the—I uh, was struck by the thought that— Given the idea that we're oftentimes made up or maybe all of the time made up of exclusively atoms, uh, how in the world do you get things like praise and blame going for, for collections of atoms? And, and why did it make sense for us to be engaged in holding uh, one another responsible? And so I thought free will seems like it's going to have to be a part of an answer to that kind of question. But the other and probably more important for me uh, way I got into this problem was really the fault of my teachers. I, I had a few teachers who thought it was just obvious that if determinism was true, that nobody could possibly ever be free, and I had other teachers that seemed to think it was completely obvious that even if determinism was true, we still would have free will, and I was struck by this. And I thought, this is really kind of a really puzzling thing. How could these really smart guys that I know disagree about something that just seems so so important? So well, that's how I came to the problem. Well, Manuel, your, your, your teachers uh,
2: and their disagreements kind of lay out a logical geography here. Uh, I must admit, I'm really confused. When we listened to the roving philosophical report, we heard about children who are learning to take more control over their lives, uh, to decide who they are and what they are, and, you know, uh, be more free. And then when I look at the arguments that Ken and I discussed, it says, well, how can there be any freedom in, in, in a causally determined system? So can you kind of lay out the possible positions so at least I'll have an intelligent
4: choice to make? Well, so here are the, the the classic philosophical positions. So one is a view that uh, sometimes gets called libertarianism, not the political party view, but rather uh, the the first and original usage of the word, which is the the view that says that we have free will, but that if determinism were true, we wouldn't. But uh, fortunately, determinism isn't true, and uh, and we have free will. Uh, another sort of view is one that thinks uh, that we would need to have. Uh, we would need to have the ability to do otherwise or something like that in some robust sense. But because determinism is true, we don't have it, and so there's no free will. So there's a yes free will uh, of the sort that would be ruled out by determinism and a no free will uh, because it's ruled out by determinism. That second view uh, gets called sometimes hard determinism or hard incompatibilism or skepticism. Right. Let
0: me ask you a question about that. I mean, so the a default common sense view about what freedom is. I mean, a lot of these philosophical puzzles get generated because people think, oh, something like determinism is true because either, say, of something like God's divine foreknowledge or something like naturalism and the metaphysics of, of the natural world. And then the natural thought is, well, wait a minute, how could freedom be in there? And you know if you think well freedom and determinism are compatible there's no problem but doesn't isn't the common sense view the first thought that anybody's going to have about this is that uh, freedom and determinism are uh, just don't go together so a kind of libertarian notion of freedom
4: well, I think it actually turns out to be a, a really surprisingly complicated thing to figure out what the ordinary common sense view is on these matters. And so, a number of philosophers have been hanging out with psychologists lately and trying to test people on these kinds of things and ask, they give them scenarios and ask them, well, what do you think about these things? And one of the things that they've they found when they describe these scenarios and ask people to give replies about uh, whether or not they think people in deterministic scenarios are free or, or not, it turns out there's a variety of different answers. So uh, uh, depending on how you phrase the question, people seem to be libertarians a lot of times. Other times, if you phrase the question a little differently, they seem to, to not be libertarians at all. And then, of course, you can always get some people who will insist that uh, nobody has any freedom at all.
2: So you've given us two, two positions, libertarianism and hard determinism or skepticism, and they both agree if we have determinism, we don't have freedom. The question is, do they go which way? What do you call the other people, the people who don't think that the two are incompatible?
4: Those folks are called compatibilists. It's a nice name uh, to help describe the position. Well, we'll
2: come back and talk about compatibilism in just a minute.
0: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing challenges to free will. Are we really as free as we think we are? Our guest is Manuel Vargas, co-author of Four Views on Free Will.
2: In a famous San Francisco case, Dan White got a light sentence for killing Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone because his brain chemistry had allegedly been influenced by eating too many Twinkies. This outraged a lot of people. But if our brain states determine what we do, and those states are determined by causes over which we have no control, don't we all have the ultimate excuse for everything we do, whether or not we eat Twinkies? Do you think we can actually exercise free will? Join us by calling 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917.
0: More about whether we're really free, whether determinism is true, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues.
2: Really? Are you really free to do what you want? Any old time? I'm John Perry.
0: And I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk. Do you believe in a God who knows every move ahead of time? Or are you a naturalist who thinks that humanity, like everything else in nature, follows the laws of nature? In either case... Can you justify punishing or even resenting people for what they do? Were they really free to make the choices they made? The toll-free number is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or email us at comments at
2: philosophytalk.org. Our guest is Manuel Vargas co-author of four views on free will
0: so Manuel I, th- I you you were suggesting I'm wrong about something but I still believe it that most people in their kind of heart intuitive heart of hearts see some kind of conflict between freedom and determinism but I know there are lots of philosophers and maybe some ordinary folk too who think that freedom and determinism are compatible I want I want you to give me your best philosophical reason I mean if not yours then the best one out there for believing that that determinism and freedom are compatible what's the best reason for believing that
4: well I don't know that there's a single best reason out well, there. well I know but, it, but this is radio I guess, so
0: I want yeah one so of the I, best so,
4: yeah let me tell you this I, I guess I'm inclined to think the the right question to ask yourself is why do we care about free will what does what what does free will do for us uh, what would what would change if we didn't have it and, and for me I'm inclined to think that that the right answer is to be found In the context of thinking about praise and blame, that is, what is it that the one reason why we can worry about free will and want free will is because we want to be in a position to hold each other responsible, and and then the relevant question is: ask yourself, what's required in order for us to be able to do that? And I think that once we tell a story about what's required to do that, it's going to turn out that the things that are that we need to have to be able to be in a position to hold one another morally responsible, those powers, th- that kind of freedom that's required to do that, I think it's going to turn out that we have that stuff pretty frequently, pretty ubiquitously.
2: Uh, Manuel, that, that seems a little uh, going around the barn to me. I mean, suppose I'm just sitting here uh, and I'm looking at this sheet of paper in front of me. It seems to me... Uh, I can just leave it the way it is or I can crumple it up and stuff it in my mouth I mean I can do either of those things and those thoughts have nothing to do with moral responsibility I mean that seems pretty far down the line. isn't it just a question of whether I'm right when I say I can do that or I could not do that I mean why why can't we focus on that question why do we have to get off on moral responsibility
4: well, I think that the 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 answer is that there's a a lot of senses I can uh, in the 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 scope of philosophical uh, philosophically troubled words that look deceptively simple. I think can's got to be among the worst, um, and, and that's and and by that I mean that there's a lot of different ways in which we can mean can. Is it true that I uh, I can buy a Ferrari? Well, sure, I could buy a Ferrari if. A whole lot of things in the world cooperated in a certain kind of way. Is it true that right now I could go down to the bank and, and pull out the money and go to the Ferrari dealership and actually get a Ferrari? Absolutely not. I don't even have anything remotely like that income, and I won't for probably the entirety of my life. But, but so, look,
2: Manuel, in, in that case, we, wouldn't, we would not say he can't buy a Ferrari. Why? It has nothing to do with what he desires or what he doesn't desire. It has to do with his bank account. So, I mean, that seems like a, a good argument for compatibilism. Whether you can or can't do something, isn't, it's irrelevant what your desires are going to cause you to do. What's, what's, what's important uh, is your abilities.
4: What, what I'd say, though, is that part of the the difficulty is to figure out what's the ability we're interested in. So it, it's surely the case that, uh, one, maybe not necessarily me, but I'll pretend like it's me for the moment, uh, in a different economy, I could go out and become an investment banker or I could become a successful lawyer. And at that point, once we say that I can do that, and it turns out to be true that one that a successful lawyer or successful banker could buy a ferrari then why doesn't it turn out to be true that i too could buy a ferrari i, I, want, to, I want to try it from a different angle i'm still i'm i like john i'm worried
0: about you know putting moral praise and blame at the center of this right but but, but i'm gonna come at it from a different angle there's all kinds of praise and blame i mean i praise a fine work of art for its beauty i praise suppose consider an athletic competition Right Somebody uh, somebody's stronger, faster and is going to win. They win, I praise them. I give them the, I give them the prize. I mean, in some sense they're determined to win because they they work harder, they got better skills, all this all this stuff, right? And I praise some and I blame others. I mean, determinism has I don't see what deter, determinism's no threat to that, and I don't see why that's you know I mean why? why I, I don't quite see what's up. Why praise and blame is the deciding thing. Because there's uh, all kinds of praise and blame.
4: What's so special about moral praise and blame? So I agree. There's lots of different kinds of praise and blame. But uh, one of the things I would note is that uh, there's a difference between moral praise and blame and other sorts of praise and blame. So when I go to look at the Grand Canyon, I can think, oh, there's a beautiful sunset. And I can think there's a beautiful sunset overlooking the canyon without having to think that there's any agency implicated, that there's any special kind of creature uh, involved in that kind of thing. and uh, one could, of course, also think that there's a, a God creator that created all of the, the beautiful scenery, but that's not important to be able to make that assessment. And you might think there's a wide range of kinds of things where we could praise or blame these things irrespective of, uh, of any sort of special assessment that is implicated of the variety that comes out when we do moral assessment of the stuff that gets triggered when we uh, experience re- profound gratitude or, or deep resentment or indignation. Now, having said that, I think that there is this special notion of praise and blame that is tied to moral responsibility and that I think requires free will. The other thing I would note, though, is I think there are a lot of reasons why you could be interested in free will, and there's a lot of different things you could mean by free will. But, but let, and, look,
2: look, before, you, before you get too far into it, let me, let me get back to your point. So you have a leaky hose. You get mad at your leaky hose. You kick your leaky hose. You say, that damn hose is responsible for this mess in my yard. Uh Now, you're saying when we say a human is responsible, it's it's not that same sense of responsible. Is that that? that, That's right. It's not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, isn't that isn't that just kind of this myth of human exceptionalism that we're somehow so different that the words don't mean the same when they apply to us?
4: Well, I don't think it's the myth of human exceptionalism. I, I guess I, I, I'd call it the truth of human exceptionalism. Um, <laughs> Whether it's that myth, is, go, go ahead. Th- that is, I do think there is something exceptional about us. We're creatures that can track reasons in the world, and we can respond to features about the world uh, in the world in very complicated ways. You're listening uh, to your phil- hose doesn't do that.
0: You're listening to philosophy talk. We're talking about challenges to free will. The number to call is one 9917 That's one 800 9917 And we've got a whole lineup of calls on the line. Anthony in Berkeley. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Anthony. Uh, hey, hello. Hello. What's your comment or question?
1: Well, my comment or question is, uh, what difference did it make? Uh, for example, <laughs> if we could somehow rig, rig it so that we knew with absolute certainty that everything was absolutely mathematically predetermined, right, how would that change your behavior in any real way? If you said, well, that mean, if I found that out, I'd be so depressed I'd stay in bed for a whole <laughs> day and say, well, that's predetermined. Uh, well, I'd st- I'd go to work. I'd do what I do anyway. Well, that's predetermined. So, what difference would it make?
0: Uh, that's a good question, uh, Anthony. So, what difference would it make if we found out tomorrow that determinism is true, Manuel? Well, I'd I'd want to check his
4: calculator, and um, in, in particular because if if we had that kind of information, we'd already know what the answer is about what difference it would make. It would tell us. It would tell us the prediction of how the future would work out, and we could make our judgments about whether or not we think it would make a difference. I mean, I guess I'm inclined to think that, uh, that uh, it's not at all clear what difference that would make one way or another for us if we discovered that determinism were true. I can tell you that I think it ought not make a difference. Um, that is, that I think that many of the things for which we're concerned with with respect to free will would continue to have a good justification. I, I for think them. there's
0: a confusion that many people, non-philosophers, first-year philosophy students have when they think, oh, det- if they think, oh, if I were to discover that ter- determinism was true, well, then I shouldn't. There's nothing I can do about anything. I give up choosing, right? Because everything's fated. But
4: there's a difference between determinism and fatalism, right? That's right. I mean, one way of thinking about it is that uh, think about the past. Don't think forward for a moment. Think about the past. Uh, it's been the case that you've made a lot of decisions. You had to make a decision to to show up at the radio station today. You had to make a decision about how to how to what you're going to do, uh, what you did last Friday, what you ate for breakfast on Wednesday. Th- those were all really decisions that you really made. Now, for all we know, determinism was true for that entire time stretching back. So I think. The fact of determinism doesn't undermine the existence of of decisions, and going forward, that's going to be true too. Even if it turned out that determinism were true. So, now, here's the other point: the the point about the fatalism is that uh, that w- we will continue to make decisions going forward into the into the future. But any decisions that or anything that's going to happen in the future that that in which we're implicated in, some of that stuff is going to work through the decisions we make. So it's not as though we can just check out, lay in our bed, and, and expect the rest of our life to unfold as though we made no difference. Okay, in that okay,
2: that's a good point, Manuel. Now, suppose we are compatible. So, so so, suppose we just accept compatibilism. That is, we say, well, even if the world is determined, we're not going to give up all this talk about praise and blame, can and cannot. Still, aren't there degrees of freedom? I mean, take, take someone who's got a smoking habit, and they've got a pack of cigarettes in front of them. And they can they it's clearly in some sense up to them whether they take the cigarette or not. Nobody's coercing them. But in a deeper sense, are they really free if they're actually addicted? Can 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 the compatibilists make a distinction between two ways of being determined, uh, uh, one of which amounts to freedom and the other doesn't? What do they say about that?
4: Absolutely. I, I think that not only can Briefly. we make this distinction, <laughs> we do it. We do it all the time. And. Um, and uh, think about the ordinary ways in which we make the distinction. So uh, one of the ways we do it is we look at similar kinds of cases. So we think a person's addicted when uh, they virtually never are able to resist the temptation. Um, That's a pretty clear case of addiction, we might think. A case in which somebody oftentimes regularly walks away from something they find appetizing. We might think not so. That's, that, that isn't a good candidate for, for addiction. And so I think there are a lot of these everyday distinctions we make. Cases where somebody's coerced or where they're persuaded, uh, seduced. We have a very rich vocabulary for talking about differences and, in ways that people do things.
0: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about uh, challenges to freedom with Manuel Vargas from the University of San Francisco. 1-800-525-9917. That's one 800 525 Chuck in Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Chuck.
1: Hi, thank you. Uh, great discussion. Um, uh, I got a couple of points. Well, the first one is that uh, once you set up this uh, opposition between free and not free, I don't think you can escape a kind of paradoxical result. Um, because, for instance, if you say that the universe uh, acts in accordance with its nature, or, or people act in accordance with their nature, uh, uh, and conclude that, uh, that uh, therefore no other behavior could have happened. Uh, somebody could respond well, uh, and say, well, it, it's, uh, it's their nature to act uh, not in accordance uh, with their nature, or universe not in accordance with its nature. And then the reply could be, well, but that's according to its nature then. Right. So in other words, you, you, you never escape that, that, that uh, back and forth, I don't think. Okay. Once you set up those two poles, my second point is that I think a moral, um, a moral question, a moral issue involves something like conscience and, uh, you know, a, a, a sense of sentiment, uh, conscience, uh, remorse, compassion, and so on, and those, I think those things are involved in, when you're talking about morality, I
2: think. So. Okay, okay uh, anyway, that's my comment. Yeah, very helpful, Chuck. Uh, uh, two good comments, but in a way... Uh, You know, Harry Truman said he wanted a a, a one-handed economist, so he couldn't say on the one hand and on the other hand. Well, we want unicorns for callers. One good point. Okay,
4: Manuel, (laughs) you have any quick response to uh, Chuck before I move on to the next caller? Well, I guess uh, with respect to his first point, all I would say is... I think in some ways that gets at the root of what so many people find threatening about determinism. That is, that anything that unfolds is just a function of the way the universe has been set up, including the particular nature of those things internal to the universe. So I think he's identified what one of the real worries are about, that people have about, about uh, determinism.
0: Okay, we've got uh, Ron in Cincinnati, Ohio, all the way from Ohio. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ron.
5: Thank you. Uh, my question is, how, do, how should we reconcile? our concept of free will with what neuroscientists are telling us about how most of our motivations are unconscious. We're not even aware why we're doing these things. And uh, we delude ourselves and create confabulations. We lie to ourselves about why we do them.
0: Good, Good question, Ron. What do you think, Manuel? You know, the brain is a notorious confabulator. Maybe the whole myth of freedom is just the brain's confabulation. What do you think about that?
4: I think this is a really wonderful question that cuts to the the heart of a lot of these issues. Um, So here's what I would say in in reply. I think uh, it's going to be true that we are massive confabulators and that we have uh, oftentimes a very bad grasp of the things that move us. And this is why I think it's important that when we talk about free will, we ask ourselves, what is it that we're really worried about with respect to free will? And so I guess I'm inclined to think that the uh, the right answer is we're, we still have free will in light of neuroscience. What neuroscience is telling us about is the, the mechanisms by which we come to have that free will. Uh, so we need to tell a story about what it is that we think the free will consists in. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, what we're going to end up finding is that we oftentimes don't have free will in quite a ro- as robust a way as we might have hoped. Uh, but that nevertheless, we have it often enough to be able to be involved in the business of praising and blaming and Uh, to make uh, sense uh, of the uh, idea we make decisions and so on. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing Challenges to Free Will with Manuel Vargas from the University of San Francisco.
2: We often resent, blame, and punish people for what they do. But is that fair if we're subject to the laws of nature in the same way everything else is? If a leaky hose messes up your garden, you might get mad, curse it, and kick it. That's clearly irrational. Isn't it equally irrational to get mad at a person who cheats you or hits you or runs off with your life savings? The Rationality
0: of Resentment, Blame, and Punishment, when Philosophy Talk continues.
2: Do we really have freedom of choice? We're exploring the challenges to the concept of free will philosophers have worried about. I'm John Perry, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our
0: guest is Manuel Vargas, co-author of Four Views on Free Will.
2: So, Manuel, you seem drawn to compatibilism, but I know you have some reservations about it. Let's move to the questions of what are the implications of your view for our practices of praise and blame, reward and punishment? should we should we stop punishing people and just kind of, you know send them off to school for mindfulness or something like that?
4: Well, I actually think the the mindfulness training is is one of the right kinds of things to be doing. Um, uh, so I do think we are free. We are responsible. It turns out uh, these things uh, are maybe somewhat different than we ordinarily, Think about them, Uh, but uh, uh, but these these practices are are in generally in good shape. So I think that what we really need to go in for is a kind of conceptual revision. We need to uh, change the way we think about the nature of free will, come to understand its nature a little better than we do now. And what we'll find is. It's the kind of thing we, we have, we can improve on, and we can importantly just, structure uh, our environments to build it better.
0: Wait a minute. Okay, I kind of agree with you about the mindfulness and structuring our environment, but aren't you just uh, being a philosophical cheat here? I mean, isn't the thing that we – you said because you said, as we think about this more, we have to give up a little bit here and give up a little bit there, but there's, there's something that we've been doing all along. And philosophers came along and theologians came along and said, that's something we've been doing all along. That's freedom, libertarian freedom or something. And now you're telling us there isn't that stuff, but there's something. But uh, haven't we really discovered that there is no freedom, but, you know, the brain's a complicated thing, and human beings remain complicated creatures, and we have these complicated practices. Isn't, isn't freedom of the will
4: just a philosophical fiction? Isn't that really what you're saying? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I really am saying what I'm saying. Uh, That is, uh, I I really do think that we are free, that we really are responsible, and it turns out to be, like a lot of other discoveries we've made, uh, it's a discovery in a sense that we've learned something that we didn't know before, and the thing that we thought it was before turns out to be uh, somewhat erroneous. So so let me give you an analogy and see if I've got it right. The
2: ancient Greeks talked about the stars and the Babylonians. They were clearly talking about the same thing we are. If they said the stars aren't that far away, they were wrong, because the thing they were talking about is far away. So they they were talking about the stars, but their conception of the stars was really all screwed up. Uh, is it like that with freedom? We've been talking about this property we have. We can do this and we can do that for thousands of years. But a lot of that time we've been confused about what that property is. Is, that,
4: is it like that? That's right. Yeah, I think it's it's very much like that. So we so what was playing. Uh, well, maybe the right way to talk to make the point is just to say this that that we oftentimes thought it required some. Uh, God-like power to initiate new causal chains, uh, mm-hmm. to to do things th- uh, for which there were no antecedents prior to us, uh, and we used to think that's what was required to make sense of our making decisions and choices. So and we're, we were just
0: wrong. Yeah, we, we, so we anyway, we choices. philosophers and theologians were wrong. The the folk were always onto the right thing because they did this thing of attributing responsibility without regard to these philosophical puzzles. But you know, we got some more callers on the line. Hal in Berkeley, welcome to Philosophy Talk, Hal.
1: Well, I just wanted to say uh, a quotation from Isaac Bathsheba's singer. When he was asked if he believed in free will or determination, he said, Free will, I have no choice.
0: (laughs) That's clever. Very nice. Thank you. You you want to make anything? Thanks, Hal, for that. You want to
4: make anything of that, Manuel, or should I move on to another caller? Well, I, I don't know that I'm subtle enough to make anything useful. Well, I just
2: point out that a lot of people would say, well, you really don't have a choice about what you believe if you're a rational person. You believe where the evidence points, but, but it doesn't, so you don't have a choice about other things.
0: Well, there you go. Tom in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Tom.
5: Well, thank you. I'm enjoying the show. I have just have a small point, but there was a, a story that I heard from Robert Bly the firebird and, t- and um, a man picking up the feather which kind of determined his course after he picked up this magical feather and I feel in my life uh, I happen to be a, a surgeon here in San Francisco if I decide to do a surgery then I have the free will to decide if I'm going to do it or not but once I decide that, that I'm going to do this surgery then my, uh, my actions become very determined after that and controlled by many other things that my free will and so I'm, I'm deciding to follow a certain course of action. So I think both are true. I'm, in marriage is often the same thing. I have <laughs> the ability to choose, but once I've chosen, then I'm chosen to follow a set of uh, determined needs. And, in fact, I rely on that. Well, and T- Tom,
0: that. Th- thanks for the call. I mean, once you choose, there's a rational course of action. And if you're rational, I mean, because there are means to your ends, then you're going kind to of follow up the means to your ends. So that's not really a threat to freedom. That just shows that rationality can determine how, how you do things. But, Mama, I want to press you on one last thing about your, your view. So you think, philo- I see, it seems to me that you think, and I just wonder if you think this is something in general, that philosophy and theology kind of made a mess of freedom cuz where do these idea of libertarian freedom come from you are you said that we do these psychological experiments and they and people's intuitions about freedom they go every which way and that but is it that you think that philosophy and theology just made a hash of the notion of freedom and the folk all along were onto you know how we go about attributing moral responsibility
4: Oh, I think the the folk have made a hash, too. I mean, uh, and that is, uh, I, I think some of the impetus for uh, believing in something like libertarian free will just comes from the phenomenology, the experience of, of first-person deliberation when we decide to do something, it sure feels like we could go one way rather than another. And with some not entirely crazy assumptions, uh, I think a lot of ordinary folk are led to conclude that they really do have this ability to do otherwise, holding fixed all sorts of facts about the world. Wait a minute.
0: We can't go one way or the other. It's determined, yet we are free.
4: Is that what you're saying?
0: It's not the case that we can go one way or the other, but we're nonetheless free?
4: I'm puzzled. Well, Uh, So here's what I think. I think... uh, even if determinism is true, and I don't know that it is, in fact, there's lots of disagreement about, um, about whether or not creatures at the level of description that we are, uh, you know, big swarms of atoms, whether or not it makes sense to think of us as determined or not. But even if you thought we were, uh, I think it, it's still going to turn out to be the case that in the sense of being able to do otherwise that matters for our, our practical lives, we can do otherwise.
2: Well, I'm I'm relieved because I really think I can do otherwise, determinism or not. Uh, uh, but but uh, uh, it's been fun fun talking to you, yeah. Manuel. I, I mean, we haven't told our listeners, I haven't disclosed here, that Manuel was a student at Stanford, so we all know each other pretty well, and it's been great to get back talking to him.
0: Yeah, so on that note, we're going to thank you for joining us. You left us with some hopeful thoughts about freedom and responsibility and all. Thanks a lot, Manuel.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Our guest has been Manuel Vargas, professor of philosophy at the University of San Francisco, co-author of Four Views on Free Will. So, John, you've thought about this stuff for a long time. You told me you're writing a book about this, right? So uh, Uh, did you learn anything today?
2: uh, Oh, I always, always learn a lot listening to Manuel and listening to you, listening to our callers. Uh, but I, I, I didn't learn that there's anything wrong with my own theory, so when the book comes out, I'm afraid this whole thousand-year-old problem is just going to have to be put to rest. Can
0: you put your theory briefly in 30 seconds so I'm, uh, you know,
2: can, can you <laughs> can, give me a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I think uh, the properties we have that we can do this, we can do that are just – our, our properties we have in virtue of general physical abilities and our circumstances. And I don't think determinism is any threat to them whatsoever.
0: Oh yeah, John, but wait a minute, that's an easy out. I mean, that's an easy out. Sure, there's a sense in which we can do this, can it's do that. It's not a sense. But it's
2: not a sense. That's like saying there's a sense of water in which it's the tears of angels and there's a the sense of water in which it's H2O. No, it's H2O. doesn't matter what you think about it. If you look at the way we use these words in, the, in the, as Wittgenstein would say, the forms of life and practices, there's a univocal verdict.
0: Well, okay. I mean, I'll have to read your book. I'm not convinced by this 45-second introduction to it. My own view is that there is no freedom. It's an illusion, but everything's all right anyway, because nothing we ever did required there to be freedom in this uh, metaphysically robust sense. And that's the mess that philosophers have made made of all this stuff. But you know, this conversation as always, continues on our blog, blog theblog.philosophytalk.org, and also our ever-growing and very active and lively Facebook community. We've got over, like, 1,400
2: members of our Facebook community, and we'd like you to become a member, too. And, in addition, you can download podcasts of our program from our website as well. Now, let's take Philosophy Talk to the movies.
0: And today, we're going to talk about the Oscar-winning and philosophically powerful movie, The Reader.
2: Ken, I thought this was a terrific movie. Uh, There's two main characters, one played by Kate Winslet, that's Hannah, and the other played by two fine actors, Ray Fiennes and, as a younger person, David Cross, that's Michael. And when he's 15 going on 16, they fall into a tempestuous affair for... A summer,
0: And you've got you've to remind uh, our listeners who may have not yet seen this wonderful movie, The Reader, that this fair takes place in post-World War II Germany. I think the year is 1958. But the affair ends abruptly. She just disappears one day. And he sees her only years later. I think it's eight or nine years later when he's a law student during this Nazi war crimes trial. And she's one of the defendants in the trial.
2: I was working at Siemens when I heard the SS was recruiting.
1: Did you know the kind of work you'd be expected to do?
2: They
0: were looking for guards. I applied for a job. And that sets up the big moral uh, dilemma in the movie.
2: That's not what I focused on. I saw it as mainly a story about two generations of Germans and the issue of moral luck germans in this younger generation have to face the fact that their parents their teachers this older generation uh were involved in to some degree with some degree of complicity and knowledge uh, the holocaust and on the one hand they recoil on the other hand they 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 can't help but see that It's their moral luck being born a generation later and not having to face this that spells the main difference between them and their parents. And I think the climax of the movie is during the trial when when the judge is berating her for, for the way she treated at that time and before these prisoners that she saw it as her duty to pick certain prisoners to be sent to the death camps and so forth. Let me rephrase. To make room you were picking women out and saying, you and you and you have to be sent back to be killed. And she looks at him and she says, Well, what would you have done? John, I think you're really under something
0: important. You, you talked about the problem of moral luck. That's, I want to emphasize that a little bit more. So imagine, just take an example. A truck driver is driving down the street, right? And he hasn't repaired his brakes. He has faulty brakes and he hasn't repaired his brake. And nothing happens. He gets home safely. Right, Another truck driver, same situation, driving down the same street. He hasn't checked his brakes. A kid jumps out in front of the truck at the last minute. The truck driver runs over the kid and smashes him, and the kid's dead. We think, what a horrible thing. What a horrible thing. We'll put him in jail f- probably for vehicular manslaughter. The first driver was in no way different from the second driver, except the second driver was unlucky in that the kid jumped out in the street in front of him. Well, moral luck. What does it have to do with the story of Hannah and Michael and the Germans after the war? What does Well, think of Hannah. She's a perfectly ordinary person. I mean, I think one of the things that the first part of the movie sets up is that Hannah has perfectly ordinary, comprehensible human motivations. She's capable of love and passion and sadness. She obviously is troubled and has a secret that she's keeping from Michael. But she's not crazy or pathological. She did something horrible. Now, the rest... The, Other Germans just like her weren't put to the moral test that she was put to right that's why that scene that you referred to when she asked the judge what would you have done well many people in the same situation no different from her would have done the same thing but they were lucky they weren't
2: put to the test and she was you know all morality isn't a matter of luck Hitler would have been a bad person even if he'd been admitted to the Vienna School of Art and hadn't gone on to be a dictator Hannah, on the other hand, is in a situation where she does something horrible because she's unlucky, but you can imagine her leading a life where she doesn't do anything all that bad to anyone. You can imagine her leading a life where she doesn't become so self-absorbed as she does. I have to say, one of the New York
0: Times film critics, Manola Dargis, finds this a morally offensive movie because we feel a deep sympathy for this woman, despite what she did during the war. But think of the Jewish survivor of this thing and her attitude toward uh, Hannah and Michael when, when Michael comes to visit her toward the end of the movie. What are you asking for?
1: Forgiveness for her? Or do you just want to feel better yourself? My advice, go to the theater if you want catharsis. Please go to literature.
2: Don't go to the camps. Nothing comes
0: out of the camps. She is uncompromising in her refusal to grant any kind of absolution to Hannah. And the movie does not challenge that as an illegitimate attitude. The movie accepts that as one way that you can respond
2: to this horror. So moral luck is is a theme that goes in and out of every scene in the reader in in, in a completely fascinating and philosophically rich way. What we feel isn't important, it's utterly
1: unimportant. The only question is what we do. If people like you don't learn from what happened to people like me, then what the hell is the point of anything?
2: It's fun talking about movies, but it's also fun to help our listeners talk about the philosophical problems that arise in their own life.
0: Yeah, if you've got a conundrum, you can send us an email at conundrums at philosophytalk.org. We won't promise to solve your problem, but we will give you lots of new ways to think
2: about it. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland-Stanford Junior University Copyright 2009. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Our directors of research are Daniel Elstein and Cole Leahy. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Meryl Kessler, Corey Goldman, Jennifer Jensen, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation. Also, from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco where our program originates. The views expressed, or misexpressed in this program,
0: do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders.
2: The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.